Hi, and welcome to Bread. This summer, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Jesus with People. And in it, we're drawing our attention to interactions that Jesus had with various groups in the book of Luke. In seeing how Jesus responds to people and how people respond to him, we see ourselves. And this helps us to be more fully aware of his presence, more fully alive, and better equipped to do his kingdom work here in our city. Take a listen. This is fun, isn't it? It's very retro, vintage almost. Um, hello, if we don't know each other, my name is Hannah and I lead bread with Ed. Um, just gonna work this out, I think I want it this side. Um, I would love to recommend a book to you uh, if you are in the market for help with devotional material. One of my favourites is called Yes And by Richard Raw, who if you know him is not uncontroversial because he is a universalist, um, but he is also someone who seems to know God very, very well. And he starts this book <coughs> excuse me, with the suggestion that we meditate on the concept that our image of God creates us. And it's something that since I first uh, read it a number of years ago has really stayed with me. And it's something that um, I feel like is a theme in pastoral conversations that I have a lot. Um, I have told this story before, but I will tell it again because there's lots of new people here. During lockdown, during the 14 months in which we didn't meet in person. Ed and I might not have had the worst job. I think doctors, other people, you know, essential workers, you know, it was really tough for them, I will admit. But I think it does need to be acknowledged how hard this was for pastors. We had to record sermons to our iPhones and we didn't get any response ever. We had no community, we had no connection, we just sat in our bedroom and spoke to a phone and then put it online. And I know some amazing things did happen, but it, it, I mean, I am kidding, it was, it was, we got through it, we had went through some rough stuff. Um, nobody liked that, did they? That was not church for anybody. And we definitely did reach a point in our um, phase, and I think everyone did, right? You got to some sort of part of the, of the journey of that weird thing when we had no idea how long it was going to ask but we had asked all asked some big big questions about whether we should keep doing what we're doing um and we started to meet with a spiritual advisor on zoom and this man is extremely i, mean, I don't know why we haven't been meeting with this man since we even thought about um planting a church but he's really helped and essentially what he does when we speak to him every time on zoom is he listens to our woes he listens to this is so terrible and we've got to record sermons to an iphone and then put them online and then we don't see anyone um, and, you know, or whatever else it was, we've got to move house and we've, oh, everything's going wrong and our children are driving us crazy and they never go anywhere. Um, but his answer was invariably. And what do you think Jesus is saying about that? And one day when I was particularly upset, um, he said, what do you think Jesus is saying about that? And I said, I don't know. I have no idea what Jesus is saying about that. And he said, well, well close your eyes. Like, let's, let's ask him now. And I had a very, very vivid picture of what I see in my mind's eye whenever I uh, read the story that's in Mark 4 and Luke 8 of Jesus calming the storm. You know, he's been asleep and the, sort of, the waves have built and the disciples are really scared. 
And I realised as I had this picture that normally when I have pictured Jesus in that story, he's, you know, he's kind of goes like, why are you so afraid? Do you still not have any faith? Why are you so afraid? And he just, he, he calms the storm. Um, that when I, in my whole life, when I have pictured Jesus in that story, he's been like kind of like that face with the disciples, like, like, oh, I mean, why are you so, just waking me up and why are you so afraid? But in this moment, when I had this picture on this particular day, I'm not going to try and copy Jesus' face. That feels like it might be wrong. But his face was like so kind and so understanding. And so it was like a kind of come and, come and get behind me, like just come here, like it's okay. This is a storm. This is horrible. I know. And it really, really impacted me then, and it still honestly does now. It's a thing that I come back to over and over again. And I realized I did not have a good image of Jesus in a lot of the, the pictures of what he's like in my mind when I tell these stories. And I lead a church, guys. How do you see him? He was a human, brown-skinned man, aged 33 when he died. Does any, is there anyone in here aged 33? 32, 34, roughly that area. There we go. They very lightly use sunscreen, so they might look a little bit better, but he's about that age. Put your hand up again. About this, about 12 years age. That's funny, like, he had arm hair. He had toenails, he had belly button fluff. He was a real person who kissed and spat and laughed and yelled and cried who can sympathize with our weaknesses in every respect because he's been tested as we are, is what the writers of Hebrews said about it. My question is how much fuller would our experiences and our understanding of what holiness actually is if we truly believed that our negative emotions are just as Jesus-like as our positive ones? Of course, we don't express them in holy ways, always. We often express them in very damaging ways and we can get stuck in them or we can deny ourselves the experience of feeling them at all. But what Jesus shows us is that anger as a feeling that is given to point to injustice and something not being right in the world is holy. Sadness is holy. Frustration, even fear. Jesus perfect, unblemished Jesus felt so much fear in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest that he sweated blood. And of course he tells us over and over and over and over again not to fear. But his life shows us that we can experience fear in this life without which of course we can't be courageous at all and do it righteously. If we could all just undo this nonsense lie that we're only getting it right with God when we're feeling joy and when we're feeling good and that he loves us when we're fine and that we're getting it wrong when we're not okay. I honestly think Ed and my and all other churches everywhere job would be a lot easier if we could all really grasp that. We're starting a new series today about Jesus and his relationship with different groups of people as told in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and I am beginning today with his relationship with Gentiles. Luke wrote both his gospel and the book of Acts 
We don't know exactly when. There's actually a huge period of time that scholars argue about when it was between, but something like the early, early 60, AD 60 and late 90. There's no agreement. But he wrote both of these books as two letters to a guy named Theophilus, who was obviously a new convert. So he says in his introduction to Luke, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theoph Theophilus. Most excellent is how you would have addressed a Roman nobleman, so that's who we assume that Theophilus was, so that you might know uh, the certainty of the things you've been taught. Um, so Luke obviously wrote a lot in his gospel and in Acts that is completely unique um, about the early life of Jesus, around his birth, um, around uh, several of the most famous parables are only in Luke, um, obviously the whole of the book of Acts. Um, there's information about the early church that we don't have anywhere else. Um, and he's thought to be one of Paul's companions, um, the same Luke that Paul mentions a few times in his letters, uh, once in 2 Timothy, once in Philemon. And, it's, and it's, if it is the same guy, he's a physician. And what's distinct about him and who he's writing to is that while the other gospel writers were very concerned with the evidence and the accounts that Jesus was the long-awaited king of the Jews, the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel, Luke is writing to Gentiles about him, so he's therefore not only interested in that, but he's much more broadly writing about the claim that he's here for all mankind. And so I think uh, it's quite a significant point here, which is that we can be very easily guilty of really oversimplifying the whole idea of what it was to be a first century Jew and how downright offensive what Jesus said and a lot of the things that he did was to their worldview. I think it's just really easy for us to kind of go, I don't know, I don't just get it. It's really obvious. Like, he said he was coming for the Gentiles too, and then he was like, obviously the Messiah, and I would have got it if I'd been there. But when we do that, we miss, like, how, what happens with the offense, and how outrageous, including women in it, was. Um, entering the room of dead people was. Healing people on the Sabbath. Letting unclean people touch him. Not... Oh, really? It's really echoey up here. But here, it sounds horrible to me. Does it not sound horrible to you? Better? That better? Sorry, guys. Shall I start again? Have you not heard anything? <laughs> um, I won't do that. I'm going to give us a little geopolitical refresher with the mic very close to my mouth. Um, can we have the map? So... As we know, Israel was called by love, by God, to love him and to live according to his law, set apart from non-Jews. But it has all got really complicated by Jesus' day. So the area, Galilee, which you might not be able to read if you're far away, but this sort of mustard, snot color at the top, um, is uh, the Northern Kingdom of Israel, now called Galilee, um, separated from Judea, where Jerusalem is located, which is, if you can't see the orange bit at the bottom, uh, by the territory of Samaria. Galilee in the north is where Jesus lived, where his childhood was, um, and it's been under separate administration from Judea for almost a millennia by this point. But at this point, 
Um, Samaria and Judea are under the uh, direct rule of Rome, but Galilee isn't. It's under Herod. The Judeans, guys in the right at the bottom, where Jerusalem is, regarded the Galileans with um, mild disdain. They, were, they saw them as lax in their observance of the proper ritual that they needed to do, which was a problem that's exacerbated because they're nowhere near the temple in Jerusalem. Um, they d- uh, didn't like their sort of country bumpkin uh, form of Aramaic. They saw them as sort of lacking sophistication, sort of hillbilly vibes. And all of this was complicated by the Hellenistic influence. So ever since the Assyrian conquest in the 8th century BC, Galilee has a much more mixed population. Um, so it's got Jewish areas like Nazareth and Capernaum, but they're in close proximity to pagan and Hellenistic cities like Tiberias. Hellenistic Jews, if you remember, they speak Greek, not Aramaic, and uh, they live among the pagans, which makes them, by Judean standards, contaminated. And consequently, Galileans who live near the Hellenists, who live near the pagans, are sort of less than because they live near them too. And then in between, it's not color and orange color, we have Samaria. Everyone hates Samarians, Samaritans, Samarians, Samaritans. Always Samaritans, sometimes it said Samarians. No, not gonna help me with that. Always Samaritans. These are the ancient foes of Israel. They intermarried when the um, Babylonians invaded centuries earlier. And they claim to now be the true Israelite descendants uh, with their own scriptures. They've got their own mountain that they say is holy. And they'd also much more recently opposed the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. In many ways, they are therefore worse than the unclean Gentiles. They are the pure enemy of the Judean, Galilean, Hellenistic Jews alike. And then throughout this area, we've also got some God-fearing Gentiles who were uh, Gentiles who believed in the, and sought to live by the law of Israel, believed in the God of Israel, but knew that they were outside of it because they were Gentile. And of course, there are pagans, idolaters, polytheists, and Jews wouldn't dream of going anywhere near them because they're impure. Judeans, Galileans, Hellenists, Samaritans, the half-breed imposter Jews, God-fearers, the Gentiles who like the Jewish law, and then full-on unclean Gentiles. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, saviour of his people, restorer of them to their land, came not as the Judean priestly class, but as a Galilean Jew. And from the very moment he starts his ministry, which is what Luke is very specific about telling us, he starts to turn all of this order on its head. And whoever you were in this era, it was a difficult thing to grasp. So you know that famous scene in Luke where Jesus has just come back from the tempting in the wilderness and he goes straight to his home synagogue to, um, uh, and he preaches from the scrolls, he uh, preaches that thing from Isaiah where it's the spirit of the Lord is on me, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom of prisoners. And they're all, the, his local hometown guys are like, oh, who is this son of Joseph? He knows all the good scriptures. And then it says, um, and it says, sorry, that they spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious word in verse 22. But then it continues, a bit that we maybe haven't sort of looked at before. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. In verse 26. Um, yeah, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow of Zarephath 
in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So two stories about these prophets found in First and Second Kings. Jesus says, there are many widows and lepers in Israel, but only these foreign Gentiles were healed. What? What he said was so offensive and inflammatory that they went from, ooh, Joseph's son, to being so mad that they tried to push him off a cliff. A couple of chapters later, a Roman centurion who was a um, God-fearer, so a Gentile lover of the Jewish law, sends a message to Jesus who is in the area asking him to heal his dying servant because he knows he can't go to his house um, because he's Gentile. And so he basically pleads, just send the word and he will be healed. Jesus' response to the crowd is, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Highly offensive. And then he sails to Gerasene soon afterwards, um, where, which is a Gentile area, and he delivers a demonized man who lives among the dead, the uncleanest of the unclean, and Jesus sets him free. He's breaking with Jewish convention and identity and norms in ways that would have been so uncomfortable for them, not just outrageous. It is so easy to read the Gospels with our 21st century, mostly Gentile Christians in this room, and think, they really missed it, didn't they? Just those awful Pharisees who just missed the point, and those crowds of people just weren't listening. These weren't small, bendable things. Their whole identity was wrapped up in this. So we need to do, like, work quite hard to, when we look at these things, switch off the part of our consciousness that are going like, well, we're different. We don't do division like that anymore. We're anti-racist. We don't believe in chosen ones. Because this works the same way for us. So let me ask you, who is your enemy? We are absolutely, even in this room, not on the same page about who's right and wrong, about all these issues that we're all fighting about at the minute. And the data says that we are more polarized than ever before in our political positions. We are wired to be part of social groups, which starts with family for most of us, but we uh, develop other primary groups where we have a shared emotional bond. It's just how we have evolved. Secondary groups then develop as we mature. So you know that feeling when you find out that someone, like you meet someone, they support the same sports team as you, or they went to the same high school as you, or they love the same obscure band that like only you knew about? You have this instant bond, this feeling. Studies consistently show that we favor our group um, when we perceive their motives, uh, when we attribute positive feelings, and even studies about how we choose to um, or how we state our preferred allocation of resources. We always choose our own. We also exaggerate the difference in our minds. And also, this is something that's being discussed quite a lot at the minute, we attribute the worst of the extremes of the other group to the whole group. It's known as confirmation bias. We have human brains that automatically and skillfully work to confirm what we already believe about the people not in our group by disbelieving their logic. Yet we don't question our own ideas or thoughts that, that don't mesh with what we already believe in our groups. We, we turn off 
the thinking parts of our brains and we go with the emotional parts of our brains with this stuff. Political and social polarization in America in 2022 isn't anything particularly new. It has happened in groups of humans, in tribes, clans, parties, allies, throughout the whole of human history. And I will remind you that as a matter of the size of our neocortices, since Neolithic times, we're not actually supposed to know as many people or know about as many people as we do right now. An average of 150 connections is what we're supposed to have by the age of 35, and that's supposed to stay flat. That's what mankind has done throughout history. If you're interested in learning more about this, you can Google a British anthropologist named Robin Dunbar. It's fascinating stuff. But the impact of social networking and this eternal digital news bombardment is profound, regardless of the whole echo chamber conversation. It's clearly overloading us to damaging effects. And then we bring this whole concept of groupthink, of us and them, to align with our side and to demonize the other side is just what it is to be a fallen human. So let me try this story on you. And as I tell you this story, I would like you to do your best to um, examine what you feel. I'm not judging the rightness or wrongness of it, we're examining what we feel. And I will also preface it with the knowledge that I am a white, cis, straight woman, and I, um, whenever I tell a story about something unfair being done to me, I need to just acknowledge, I do understand that I live with an enormous privilege. Um, so, we've moved here to start a church, and we haven't done it the way that you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it with a big core group. You're supposed to arrive in the city and have enough money to sort of work out how you can get to know the city and get to know the people before you start the church. We've done it all wrong. We have a very, very long wait for our visa. Our funds are massively depleted. We have a visa that means we're not allowed to do any other jobs. We are only allowed to, or actually only Ed is allowed to work for a church. I'm not allowed to work, I'm not allowed to earn money. The two volunteers that we brought aren't allowed to earn money. We have to start this church. So we start this church uh, in Culver City. And um, it meant that the sort of sense of it that was about um, trusting God that he'll bring the right people and he's building it for us was quite hard to cling to. We were just quite like, come in, come in, everyone, come in. Are you going to join? Are you going to join? Great, great. We need some money. We need people to help. It was, it was, it was fleshly a lot of the time, if I'm being very honest. Um, and we had this couple arrive and they were great. And they'd moved from the east side to the west side and they were on a the street parallel to where we were meeting and they felt it was a massive sign from God that we were right there. They really liked it and they got involved. They helped us with loads of stuff. We really liked them. And um, their old, they still had a, a relationship with their old elders. And this one particular day, um, Ed received an email from them that they said they were writing to him <laughs> um, as the, the one overall in charge of the church and as my husband because the elder of their last church had searched me out online and had found that on my Facebook profile I had a pride flag five, six years earlier and they were very, very concerned for these friends um, because they felt that they were going to a church that was teaching things that should not be taught in church. Um, and now, imagine how I reacted. 
with forgiveness and grace and understanding because he said theological positions were all wrestling through. No, I didn't. I was really angry. I was really hurt. My ego was really bruised. How dare you send Ed an email about me? You come to me if you have a problem with me. I mean, I was like, I was offended on so many levels. Righteous indignation of this experience. Um, I bitched about it loads. I like told loads of people, like, guess what I've just been through. It like, um, I, I would like to think I would do better now. The ego part of me then, I was just deeply insecure, honestly, about being seen as capable of doing this with Ed. Um, it very much felt like the sort of doing it at all was because I did, I did really truly believe the sense of a call to it, um, but I hadn't trained, I hadn't, like Ed's got like over a decade experience of doing this stuff. I was like, cool. Um, and I was, I was, it was, that just hit right in the heart of my own fear and insecurity. And of course, mixed in is this other piece of it that's about justice and love and what we're here to do and feeling misunderstood. The thing is, a view that a biblical marriage should be between a man and a woman is a theological position. And a view that a man is in charge of his wife is a theological position. She'd speak for her and answer for her. And we can, you know, smirk at it, but it is what a lot of people believe, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we obviously passionately care about the damage that has been done by some of the people who express those positions in church. And I really always want to be careful when we say anything like this to, to make sure that you hear me as distinguishing between what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I am not saying we should be silent and just put up with stuff and let everyone just be like, well, you know, they love Jesus too. Like, we, we are here to, to stand up for justice, to stand up with love, to love people and, and, and have them known that we are included, every one of us, in this thing. But it, as, as long as we are responding out of our ego, we are limiting the gospel, we are limiting the kingdom, and we're limiting our own abilities to be effective for them. Because Jesus has brought a new day, a day where we are called not to conform to these patterns, but to do something else to speak with kindness and love, to have compassion and humility and grace. Praying for those who persecute us, loving our neighbor as ourselves, these ourselves, these are not new problems. In fact, an expert in the law took this very problem to a rabbi in Luke chapter 10. He knows that in order to inherit eternal life, he has, um, to love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. Everyone would have known that. But the expert in the, expert in the law wants Jesus to lay out his fine print as a rabbi. So he asks him, ah, and who is my neighbor? Uh, so this is 10 verse 30. Jesus replied, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, sorry, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I'm sure you know this story. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. It's interesting, isn't it, that the good Samaritan is not actually the proverbial kind stranger who steps in. That's definitely what we think of a good Samaritan, isn't it? Just any kind stranger who steps in to help. We've really, like, idiomized the point away from this. The good Samaritan is actually the arch enemy who steps in to help. Jesus has set up the first two players, which we, again, wouldn't automatically recognize, um, to mean that the third player that they're expecting is automatically uh, an Israelite. So it's like um, we say the Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman, you say what, what's yours, the um, uh, priest, rabbi, and minister, is that your American version of a joke? It's like that, it's that kind of thing where it, they're expecting if the priest's gone by, a Levite's gone by, it's gonna be an Israelite. So a Samaritan is like a what? But there's more than this. If the man on the ground was dead, and, uh, or not Jewish, he's therefore unclean. So for the priest or the Levite to touch him would make them unclean. It would mean uh, that, in fact, even if he was alive and then later died, it would make them unclean. So they wouldn't be able to do their jobs that they were going to do, whatever they were on this road to do, if they touched this man. And interestingly, if Jesus had told the story in the reverse with the Samaritan lying on the floor, there'd be absolutely no onus on any Jew to care for him within keeping the law. A good moral Jewish man or woman could pass by an injured Samaritan and be in no breach of the law about loving your neighbor. Because they're not neighbors, Samaritans. They're idolaters. They're perverters of the true faith. In the um, chapter before, in fact, Luke has described um, the bit when Jesus is traveling through Samaria with the disciples and they send out messengers to a village to see if they will have them stay the night and they turn them away. And a couple of the disciples are absolutely outraged and they, they ask Jesus if they should call down fire from hell and strike them down. It's just how given it is that these people are awful. Jesus says, no, let's not do that. So the priests and the Levite aren't necessarily the sort of callous cowards that we might have always imagined them to be in this story. They're doing the completely justifiable thing. That the third player is a Samaritan, however, is offensive. It's outlandish. It's making a hero of your enemy, an ancient enemy who has wronged you, who raped Jacob's daughter, who murdered your people, who built an altar to, your, uh, to the gods of your enemy. So let us try now to relate. Who is your enemy? Who are the people in the church or outside of the church 
in politics, whose voices upset you the most, offend you the most? Who is it most difficult to imagine that Jesus is asking you in this parable to picture them not just helping you, not just stopping and, you know, giving you a bit of help, changing your tire or whatever. He's going to anoint you with oil, load you onto his mule, take you to an inn, pay your bill. He's giving up his plans. He's giving up a lot of his money, the equivalent of three and a half weeks' wages. More if you need it. Full-bodied, multidimensional, need-meeting, friendship, advocacy, medical treatment, transportation, financially generous compassion. The lawyer has asked Jesus to define who his neighbour is in the hope that he is going to limit the scope of who the neighbour is. And the answer that Jesus has for us all is there is no such thing as neighbour anymore. This is new now. This is the way that we reach across the aisle when everyone else is so divided. That our job is to break down the walls, to say, you first and not me, even to our enemies. It doesn't huddle with members of our own tribe or build walls to protect us. It doesn't play by the forces of in-group and out-group psychology anymore. I read yesterday about a 19-year-old political strategist and Gen Z voter registration activist um, who this week was fat-shamed in a tweet by a um, controversial congressman who shall remain nameless. It was a pretty horrible tweet. To which she uh, replied, actually, in pretty gracious and measured ways, relatively gracious. And she sort of managed to absorb the offence and not react in the way that everyone was expecting. And then she used the moment to raise... Um, hundreds of thousands of new followers, and as of this morning, $2.1 million for her cause. And uh, I read an interview with her in Teen Vogue, which is Ed's favourite news outlet. Um, <laughs> I'm always seeing it. Um, they asked her, how did you get the confidence to shut down an elected official publicly? This is what she said. I truly believe that my comeback ability and my confidence in times of arguments or attacks 100% comes from years of watching WWE and scripted content. We need to be doing better than WWE, people of God. For us, this is not about winning arguments or obviously acquiring new online followers, good grief. What the world needs now is love, 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 and the ability to disagree and still love each other. We have to be able to talk about the things that we disagree with, with our neighbors and our enemy. And I do wanna say, I really feel that this is like one of the most important pastoral messages we can have for the church at the minute but it is also like ninja level discipleship that we're talking about here this is not a simple thing because it requires us to feel our feelings to let god into the stuff that we feel about those things that we feel for ourselves that we feel for other people but it requires us to move through those feelings which is you know what all emotional maturity is about 
and to be released in freedom to love, to listen, to converse without sarcasm and condescension. It's always hard for us Brits to do that. But if we can learn it, anyone can. We are called to meet this tribal hatred and conflict and suspicion and fear and ego with love. It says in uh, this passage in Luke, this parable, that the Samaritan was filled with compassion, which is from the Greek word splagma, and it means from your gut, to be moved in your deepest soul. Um, and it's the word most often used for Jesus' emotional state of love for us. That's the point. Splagma is compassion that only comes from Jesus. It's not ours to manufacture. It's what happens when we receive from him. And it's, it's something completely else to anything that human effort can conjure up. Um, if the band want to come up, we're going to... Uh, try and receive some of this in a second. In Colossians 1, it says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Fullness of God that enabled all of this power and wisdom and grace and splagma from the depths of his soul compassion. Jesus was full. We are not full. We leak. That's how we often describe this. Why if you've never heard us explain this, we do this thing at the front here. We get filled up. We believe that we're all filled with the Holy Spirit, right, Christians? We get filled up on a Sunday, and then we leak it. And then we need to get filled up again because we leak it. We leak compassion. We leak our ability to do this. We must be full of it. Come and be filled with it. We had a... Um, uh, prophetic picture in the um, pre-service prayer meeting this morning, which felt really relevant for this and for someone, some people in here. And it was of um, a doctor trying to give an injection to someone and their skin kept breaking the needle over and over again. And then a new doctor came in and it finally worked in the sense of being somebody or some people have been trying to receive love, to know that they're loved and it doesn't seem to be working. Um, but, but this is what Jesus wants to do this morning. Let me tell you guys, there is absolutely no point in any of this. Good grief, it's too hard to do any of this. Lead a church, any of it, if we don't know this love, if we can't see that Jesus' face is not come on, do better, is I love you so much. I understand this so much. I am with you in all of this. So let's stand now.